You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 16th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. What has been the weirdest political moment of this year? What great Christmas songs are we not hearing enough of? And what goes into the staging of a traditional Christmas performance? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and not only that, it's the last daily of 2022. And the Monocle staffers who'd rather spend some more time here, reflecting on the ebbing year than make an early start getting home to their families, include Carlotta Ribello, Chris Lord, David Stevens, and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. And a recurrent gripe of Serbia during and since the Kosovo War has been that the West, in the shape of NATO, allied itself with a local militia, the Kosovo Liberation Army, whose conduct was unlikely to be likened to that of a troop of Boy Scouts. 23 years after the event, this view has been vindicated somewhat by the first verdict handed down by the Kosovo specialist chambers in The Hague. Sali Mustafa, a former KLA commander, has been sentenced to 26 years for murder, torture and arbitrary detention. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Guy Delaunay, our Balkans correspondent. Um, Guy, before we look at the sentence and the verdict, uh, maybe a word about the prisoner. How big a deal is Sali Mustafa in the KLA scheme of things? Not a huge deal in the KLA scheme of things. He was a commander, but he wasn't one of these people who progressed to becoming a um, high-level political figure like Ramush Haradina, who's been prime minister, or Hashim Thatchi, who's been both prime minister and president. So he's not on that sort of level. But I think the reason why they got this case in first at the Kosovo Specialist Chambers is that the victims in this case were ethnic Albanian civilians. So what this was doing, it was a very clever bit of strategy or an attempted strategy, if you ask me, by the the Kosovo Specialist Chambers. They were trying to show that this wasn't a court which was set up to prosecute Kosovar Albanians uh, for committing crimes against ethnic Serbs. It was a court that was set up to, com- to prosecute egregious crimes by members of the Kosovo Liberation Army, whoever their victims were. And the the judge was at pains to say in this case uh, that the victims are citizens of Kosovo. Their efforts to find truth is at the heart of the proceedings. What's the reaction so far in Kosovo, so far as you can tell? We will talk about a few of those other names you mentioned because uh, Mr Mustafa is not the only one who is due the deliberations of the Kosovo Specialist Chambers. Indeed, that is correct. I mean, just for for an example, Minister of the Environment in Kosovo at the moment, Libon Aliu, has said the former commander of the Kosovo Liberation Army, Sali Mustafa, who fought for the liberation of the country from Serbian occupation, received a severe and undeserved punishment. Uh, The Vetovendosja party, which is the party of government in Kosovo, has also said we opposed setting up this court in the first place. Uh, The idea that somebody who fought for the country's freedom uh, should be prosecuted and sentenced to 26 years is utterly outrageous. Um, The uh, 
Democratic Party of Kosovo (PDK), which is the former, which is the party of, uh, of the former President uh, Hashim Thaci, have said uh, it's a severe sentence that incites indignation in every Albanian. Now, this I might remind you is all about a court, which is a court of Kosovo. The Kosovo Specialist Chambers was set up uh, by an act of Parliament by Kosovo, and it's uh, being held in the Hague because of. Uh, you know, the fears of witness intimidation, uh, which the judge alluded to today, well, detailed today, and which have been a problem in previous cases involving former members of the KLA. So all that being the case, how is Kosovo and Kosovan public opinion likely to react when Hashim Thaci actually is in the dock? As you mentioned, he was former president, former prime minister, a very senior commander of the KLA, and you don't need that long a memory to recall him being thought of as the George Washington or Simon Bolivar of the Western Balkans. Indeed not. Um, But, you know, he's... He's a problematic figure in Kosovo, to be honest with you, and the the, the KLA is a problematic organisation in Kosovo. On the one hand, uh, you know, you'll you'll go into Pristina and uh, there are boulevards called, you know, Boulevard KLA. I mean, it's 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 the, the 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 narrative, the national narrative, is that the KLA was responsible for the liberation of Kosovo and its people, majority ethnic Albanian, um, from the hideous yoke of Slobodan Milosevic and his genocidal um, Serb nationalist regime in Yugoslavia. That's the narrative, and it's very hard to go up against that. On the other hand, younger Kosovars in particular are very unimpressed with the KLA-turned-politicians, which includes Hashim Thaci, whom they see as a thoroughly kleptocratic lot who've been filling their pockets while not exactly advancing the cause of the young people. And Kosovo is the youngest country in Europe, not just in terms of its own age, but in terms of the composition of its population. So, you know, it's, it's complicated as they like to say. But going up against the idea of the, the, the KLA, going up against the idea that they were anything other than the saintly liberal of the country is a very difficult prospect indeed in Kosovo, certainly in mainstream discourse. But do the KLA crowd still play much of a direct role in the way that Kosovo is governed? I mean, the thing is, because these were all young soldiers in the late 1990s, they are very far from old men now. Yeah, it's they are less involved than they were because Vetevin Dosia, which means self-determination, is the current party of government. Uh, but, you know, self-determination obviously means we're ethnic Albanians and we'd much rather be part of Albania than we would be part of Serbia or indeed an independent Kosovo. That's where the, the current government stands. And the Prime Minister, Albin Kurti, who's the leading light of Vetevin Dosia, whom I've met on numerous occasions, who's a very twinkly fellow, but, you know, he doesn't believe that, that Kosovo should exist. He thinks they should be merged with Albania. And he also has been fiercely against the idea of establishing the Kosovo Specialist Chambers War Crimes Court. Uh, he was a former yeah, political officer, communications officer in the KLA himself. So this isn't where his, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the Kosovo Specialist Chambers is anathema to him. This was a righteous struggle as far as the current government was concerned. To prosecute people for a righteous struggle is incorrect. Guy Delaunay, thank you as always for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. We'll be back right after this. (laughs) 
You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. On both sides of the Atlantic, and indeed in many other jurisdictions, 2022 has been a weird year in politics. It is tempting to say memorably weird, but there has been so much weird stuff, it's actually weird how much of it we've forgotten. Joining me now in the studio to remind us of some of it is Carlotta Ribello, a senior producer and presenter at Monocle 24, and Chris Lord, our US editor and one of a select group of UK citizens who has not had a go at being Chancellor of the Exchequer this year. Uh, Welcome both. We are going to round up the entire year in politics everywhere in the world in about no more than seven minutes. This is this is going to be quite spectacular. Chris, what what would you like to start with? Well, I think I've been amazed watching from a from a front row seat, if you will, of being in America, the Biden communication strategy, Mm. which has had its ups and it's severe downs, I would say, in the past year. Um, and it's been so interesting to watch how that plays out where, you know, he is so he's so ready, Joe Biden, to off the cuff in a way that is just so not what we think of when we think of the button-down, long-standing presidential character. Mm. And the phenomenally amazing put-down to the Fox News reporter who commented by saying during a press conference he said mr president is inflation an election liability that's a great asset more inflation what a stupid son of a bitch <laughs> so what you hear there, you know, the fact that he is in a press conference, it's not like it's a hot mic situation. It's like he actually turns to the person at his right and quite is quite happy to say uh, what he says about that Fox News reporter. Now, uh, I, what I think that is obviously hilarious, but also indicative of the Joe Biden that has emerged since he got into the presidency, because I think before he got in, I think certainly on this side of the Atlantic, the feeling was about Joe Biden that he was a sort of Obama 2.0. It was mm. like he was cut from that same cloth, which is you know very respectable and and that sort of very presidential image and, you know, the, the image of a sort of very open minded US president and so on, which there is some truth in that. But as the years have gone, these two years have gone by, you've seen this other side of him where in some some ways he has that America first about him, first of all, mm-hmm. I would say, that I think really blindsided a lot of observers of American politics unless they knew Joe Biden for a very long time. So he's been very ready to play that sort of America first card. And he's almost, almost now and then got a bit Trumpian with mm-hmm. his attitude towards the press and also his absolute fearlessness in the face of mad gaffes. He has no fear He's also speaking out of turn. Look at the Taiwan situation, Andrew. Yeah, he's also really old and therefore possibly past caring in a way that people often are at that point in their lives. Do you think that's the trick, is that he simply gave up in caring what people might think about him? Just like, I'm going to say what I actually think of things. Yeah, uh, and the the hot mic that wasn't a hot mic, I mean, my feeling about those is always that they actually end up playing quite well for the politician involved, because I think at that moment the human is revealed and you get a bit of a sense as a voter of what it is like to have to kind of keep justifying your existence by getting (laughs) yelled at by a room full of people asking you what the hell you think you're doing. I I think most of us would find that somewhat vexing. Uh, I I would agree. I mean, I think for him, I think, to, for him to, to pierce that image of, of, of the elder statesman, if you will, mm. and 
turn around and call a reporter, that is is extraordinary. Uh, Carlotta, to bring you in, you had a couple of clips you isolated, which for very different reasons <laughs> were interactions involving heads of state or government and items of food. Um, let's start with President Emmanuel Macron. Yeah, so this was like one, perhaps the most recent of my selections. It happened this month in December at the beginning of the month. And this is, you might remember that the baguette was added to the United Nations mm. intangible cultural heritage list. So I think it not only gave us an amazing sound bites, but also the best photos of a cheery Macron with a huge French flag behind him holding a baguette like if it's a precious artifact <laughs> discovered in the tombs of Versailles. And uh, it provided some sound bites like, in, and this is a quote, in these few centimetres passed from hand to hand lies the spirit of French know-how. We need to listen to the clip because it's marvellous. Dans ces quelques centimètres de savoir-faire passé de main en main, il y a, il y a exactement l'esprit du savoir-faire français. C'est-à-dire que c'est quelque chose d'inimitable. Ça paraît être juste matériel. Mais non. See, I, I do genuinely suspect President Macron of actually having a functioning sense of humour, and I think I think he enjoys the occasional opportunity to let it out. Well, and um, I like that everyone at the time already found it funny, and you know the fact that he he was talking about the this French touch that uh, other people try to make, but it's just too industrial and bland. And less gloriously, Carlotta, pursuing the the theme of interactions between heads of state and or government and items of food, we have to talk about Liz Truss, who attentive listeners may just about recall being Prime Minister of the United Kingdom for about 20 minutes, and a lettuce. Oh, my God. So when talking, thinking about a weird year in politics, you could do that just for the UK alone, mm. and this entire programme would not be enough. But the lettuce gate was, without a doubt, you know, it's surpassed Big Jet TV and that thought that was the biggest moment in television history in the UK this year. But no, this is a moment that we wanted to see if a lettuce would outlast Liz Truss as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and a lettuce one. Things were going so badly, so badly, that the British press trolled her with vegetables. In a sign of just how tenuous her standing was, and perhaps how brutal UK politics can be, a British newspaper began tracking a head of lettuce to see if the embattled truss would last longer than the produce, and it did. It, it was the, the Daily Star to whom we are indebted for that bit of old-school British tabloid rumbustiousness. <laughs> and and that, that is the only thing anyone's going to remember about Liz Truss. Well, and the fact that she was the Prime Minister when the Queen yeah. died. She accidentally spoke at the Queen's funeral and got beaten in a, I don't know if it was a popularity poll, whatever kind of contest it was. There's no good way to lose any kind of contest to a lettuce. It, it's just... Uh, no, and, the, I mean... Good on the lettuce, I'd say. That is quality <laughs> produce. That's that's all I have to report on this story. But yes, that was my highlight of uh, an insane year in the UK for uh, politics. We should return to your side of the Atlantic as well, Chris, uh, just quickly. We, we need to discuss the evolution of the Let's Go Brandon meme, which is a... It, I, I mean, as somebody who's always interested in, in how language develops and how phrases enter the lexicon, it, it's been quite something to watch because... It doesn't mean what it means, but everyone knows what it does actually mean. It's a proper shibboleth. I mean, yeah. It's like in the old school meaning of the word. So mm. it's like 
just for a recap, so this time last year, really, mm. um, there was a a meeting of NASCAR. There was there was, there was a NASCAR event mm-hmm. going on in the US, and during that, one of the crowds started chanting. Well, I think we're going to hear a little bit of it now. All of our partners. Oh my God! It's just such an unbelievable moment. Brandon, you also told me, as you can hear the chants from the the crowd. Let's go, Brandon. Brandon, you told me you were going to kind of hang back those first two seconds. So, so, so yeah, the, the crowd very clearly not chanting, let's go, Brandon. Absolutely. And sh- the, the reporter so uh, pleasantly misinterprets it and, 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 and created one of the most powerful memes at the end of the last year. What I found amazing is how that has just embedded itself mm. in the minds of the opponents of Joe Biden across America. It's been incredible to watch. You know, you drive out. I've done stories out in in, uh, the back and beyond of North Carolina, and you drive down tiny streets in the middle of nowhere, and you will see, like you used to say, what you used to say things like, vote Trump or or, Mm. or whoever, you now see huge signs that say, let's go, Brandon. They're on (laughs) bumper stickers. They're on baseball caps. And this bizarre little meme, as we started by saying, it's like a shibboleth. It's like basically... The agreement beyond those who don't like the president that actually the official line is terrible. He's not very good. And this is what the people think, but you'll never hear it on the media, basically. That's the sort of line I think going on. Uh, We we should finish very quickly, Chris, with uh, to try and end on an upbeat note. Mm. This is from the would need a heart of stone not to laugh out loud file. The crashing and burning of Herschel Walker uh, as he sought the Georgia Senate seat. Absolutely. Yeah. So the Georgia runoff, obviously, we had the whole midterms in November and the only one that was remaining was Georgia. They went back to the, back to the polls. And with that runoff, uh, the, the really the, the debate got very, very strange. Here is Herschel Walker uh, giving an extraordinary address to supporters. It's kind of stupid, but I'm still watching, though. As I'm watching this show, what was funny, these kids had a vampire in their attic at their house. So they were watching their TV. Now, I'm watching my TV as they're watching their TV, or they see the vampire killer on their TV. So they win this contest to bring this actor. Now, y'all got to stay with me. Bring this actor who's a vampire killer from that TV to get rid of this real-life vampire in that attic. So as this actor comes to their home, he got all the right stuff. He got all the right stuff because, you know, you got to have a steak and got to have a thing to kill him in the heart. And he got a necklace of garlic because that worked. I don't know what it does, but it worked. You got to have a crawl. See, I, I can remember watching Herschel Walker play football, and he was a very, very fine footballer, especially at college, whereas now he does rather put you in mind of what Lyndon Johnson is reputed to have said about Gerald Ford, i.e. that Ford had just played football too long without wearing a helmet. Um, ca- ca- but he what? narrates that story very well, right? I mean, he, he, tells, he gives you the reason why... You know, see, he subsequently goes on to say he'd rather be... A werewolf than a vampire. <laughs> well, yeah, th- I think there's a time and a place for such observations, <laughs> and they're, they're arguably not when you're running for elected office. Uh, Carlotta, just finally, finally, um, the, the president of your homeland had arguably the year's most uh, fortuitous snub he was on the receiving end of. Uh, receiving end of. Absolutely. We're talking here about Marcelo Rebelo de Sousa, who was the Portuguese president, and he was in Brazil. And this was to mark um, the, the anniversary of the first trans transatlantic flight. Uh, Mm. So bilateral relations between the two countries have always been great and it was to mark that. Of course, a head of state going to another country was like, I might as well try to meet up with the president and, you know, why not? And it was... In during the presidential campaign. So he decided to meet up as well with Lula da Silva, who is now president-elect of Brazil and who 
as former president, has had relationships with our president in the past. And upon Jair Bolsonaro finding out that Portugal's president had decided to go for lunch with Lula da Silva as well, he suddenly was too busy because he had to go to the hairdresser. So he was too busy to meet with the Portuguese president. And it led to an amazing clip, which is Marcelo on the beach and Copacabana with Portugal's culture minister going for a swim, surrounded by reporters asking him if he was upset for being snubbed. He's like, why would I be? I'm in Copacabana Beach. Just had an opening in my schedule. It's great. If he doesn't want to have lunch, there's plenty of tasty places around town. And I thought that was a great, a great moment. moment for for dipl- diplomacy abroad for Portugal. And, and, and something for us all to aim for <laughs> next year. Carlotta Rebello and Chris Lord, thank you both for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. While it is only December 16th, we have already reached that stage of the festive season at which being subjected one more goddamn time to Slade's Merry Christmas Everybody or Wizards I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day or Wham's Last Christmas will prompt thoughts of running amuck with a chainsaw. Happy as ever to help, The Daily has enlisted the last two monocle staffers who failed to leave in time in an attempt to broaden the Yuletide repertoire. And joining me now are Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, producer for Monocle on Culture, and our senior studio manager, David Stevens. Um, David, first of all, I'm going to ask you a question which I ask you regularly, in fact, on an almost daily basis. How does this work? (laughs) (laughs) The the segment. I mean, you you also started with, I'm going to ask you a question, which I suggest is a good way to begin interviews. Good. Excellent. um, Why don't you... Yeah. Oh, wait, do you really not know how this goes? Do you want me to host? Well, I mean, go ahead. I mean, <laughs> as, I, as I broadly understand it, the pair of you are going to introduce some new Christmas music. Okay, I can give you a bit more structure than that. Let's do it. Uh, so Sophie and I have bought, A, a song that the listeners, or you, might not have heard before, a Christmas song right that on. we enjoy that maybe isn't so well known. And then, B, we've brought one that we wish to add to the Christmas classics. Okay, the the, the sort of pantheon of stuff that gets played in supermarkets. Yeah. The exactly. Christmas song canon, I think. Yeah, so, but, some, but more, so more a, recent. A Christmas uh, song you would like to see added to the canon as opposed to, like the ones I mentioned, fired out of one. Yeah, so they can get a little bit less airtime. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Um, so which, what, are we, what are we going to start with? I think, I think Sophie, you can start. Okay, well, <laughs> I, so every year on Monocle on Culture, we bring in two of our regular contributors mm-hmm. and we take a look at some of the albums and some of the singles that have come out, the kind of Christmas albums, Christmas singles, and we uh, review them. And this year we talked about lots of uh, very lovely ones. There's a really great um, Lizzo cover of a Stevie Wonder song, Phoebe Bridges, always brings out a lot of uh, very lovely, soothing Christmas music. But the one that I wanted to play to you today... Uh, just to give you a snippet of some of the new stuff that is out there. Are you familiar with Lee Bryce? I am not. Okay, so he's apparently, I didn't know this, a big country, uh, American country singer. Okay. I know you're a fan of country. Well, so... I, I, I am a fan of country very much so, but is Lee Bryce one of those people who wears a very large hat and sings songs about beer and pickup trucks? Yes, he mm. might be. He might be. Uh, so... To give you a clue, this song is called Santa Claus Was My Uber Driver. Oh dear. This could go one of two ways. 
let's let's hear how how it does go. Yeah, he's one of those guys who wears a big hat and sings he songs is, about beer and pickup trucks. Uh, that's that. That's all right. That felt to me like you, you know in uh, in Love Actually where they replace one of the words of the song with the word Christmas. It sounds like mm. he just kind of wrote a country song and then was like, "We need a Christmas and song." Added, and it's like, I guess Santa yeah. was my Uber driver. Santa then. can be the guy yeah. on the beach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think to be honest, the first time I listened to it, I did not enjoy it but I had to listen to it quite a few times when we were putting together the show and now I think maybe I quite like it. He won by attrition. Yeah. Do, he, do, he got, do, do you think he, so are you unsure whether you actually like it or whether this is sort of that musical equivalent of Stockholm yes, Syndrome? That you, I know it. Yeah, I know it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, David, what, what have you brought us? Well I brought one that maybe is less uh, familiar to our listeners but I'm wondering whether you might recognise it. Mm. Does the term Snoopy's Christmas mean anything to you? Uh, this rings a vague bell, yes. So, coming over to this country uh, five and a half years now, uh, and uh, I would mention this, because it is absolutely a classic Christmas song in New Zealand, and I would mention the song, and I'd just get complete blank looks, not just like, I don't really like that one, but like, I have never heard of this in my life, I've no idea. Is this one of those cultural phenomenon which has not jumped the Tasman? Well... It apparently has. It charted in both countries, so I'm, I'm a little bit surprised you haven't heard it. It also charted in Canada. Um, how, how long? Like I said, it rings a very vague We're talking 60s bell. here, very and we're talking about bell. actual Snoopy, the dog. Yeah, yeah, um, I'm familiar with the, <laughs> the creature. <laughs> it could have been any Snoopy. Um, but it, it apparently remained popular in New Zealand, where it dropped off the radar elsewhere. Um, it's recharted, so it was from the uh, 67. It recharted mm-hmm. three times in the 80s, and as recently as 2013, it's been back in the charts in New Zealand. Okay. Cue, cue the joke about New Zealand, it's coming, I know. Which one? I mean, there's, there's just, there are so, so many to choose from. Um, shall we hear some of it? Go on. Can I, give you, can I give you a bit of background? Please. It, I was just about to ask for exactly that. Like, who is responsible for this? So it's, it's by the Royal Guardsmen. Mm-hmm. I, I fear a band that was created to make this specific song it, it and the one before right. it. But it's a sequel to Snoopy versus the Red Baron. And See, it actually, that I remember Well, there you go. Well. So it, it goes through a story of the, I think now largely debunked Christmas truce, mm-hmm. uh, and Snoopy is an air, uh, air Force pilot mm-hmm. gone to take on the Red Baron in, uh, on Christmas Eve, and not to spoil the song, but it turns out it might be someone in a sleigh that he's actually uh, going after. E- easy mistake to make. <laughs> Sorry, uh, very, both, both red. But both red, both piloted by men dressed in, you know, some sort of uniform. Uh, Manfred von Richthofen's triplane was, of course, not pulled by reindeer. As far as I know, no. But d- d- uh, Different silhouette. A decent fighter pilot should have been able to pick that up. But there you go. I, I, I love a kind of 60s-era Christmas song. Okay. Most of them aren't quite like that, but uh, but there's one for you that you might not have heard. And do you still like this song? Because I've never heard it before, and I'm quite enjoying the kind of marching band vibe. I think it's got some but merit. I feel like if this was something that was played in every shop and on the radio constantly, I might rotate it. So 
do you like it even though you've heard it over and over again? It's got one of the benefits of a of a good Christmas song, or one of the 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 good parts of a good Christmas song is just a singable chorus, right? The Christmas bells, but you can get along to. But the verses get very bogged down in like a, a kind of it, 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 you know. <laughs> well, you've got a dog fight, basically, which is very odd, you know, and especially when you're trying to enjoy Christmas and it's like, he's coming out, he's going to shit. So the the chorus I really love, the rest I can probably take a leave. Okay. The other thing we want to do here is try and expand the Christmas canon, and you each had a couple of submissions to make, and apparently I'm going to judge what gets up and what does not. Uh, Sophie, shall we start with you? Yes. Um, I picked for this one the classic Destiny's Child, uh, Eight Days of Christmas. On the eighth day of Christmas, my baby gave to me a pair of Chloe shades and a diamond belly ring. On the seventh day of Christmas, my baby gave to me a nice back rub, then he massaged my feet. On the sixth day of Christmas, my baby gave to me a crop jacket with dirty denim jeans. On the fifth day of Christmas, my baby gave to me the point that he wrote for me. David Stevens, can you compete with Destiny's Child? I'm not being kind to you, Andrew. Uh, I'm going for, you know, I like that she put out a full Christmas album of uh, mostly original Christmas songs, because mm-hmm. they have to be original. Uh, the, the days of covering the old ones are gone. Uh, I'm going with Sears, mm-hmm. Santa's Coming For Us. Okay. I still have Destiny's Child leading the race, uh, I I, I have to say. Sophie? The pair of Chloe shades and the diamond belly ring. I'm happy to concede to those, yeah. You can't really beat that. In that case, then, it's official. Who's going to argue with us? Uh, Destiny's Child is officially added to the Christmas canon. Uh, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and David Stevens, thank you for joining us. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. And finally, on today's show, it is that time of year when the Royal Ballet here in the UK revives its performance of Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker. Monocle's Claudia Jacob took a trip to the Royal Opera House in London to watch the dancers rehearse and learn more about the festive classic. A number of listeners will have slipped on a pair of ballet shoes at some point in their childhood, but only a select few pursue the graceful form of artistic expression professionally. Widely recognised as one of the most competitive and physically demanding industries, there's an aura of wonder around those able to make it to the top. But here at the Royal Opera House in London's Covent Garden is the creme de la creme of the industry. Averaging around 135 performances every season, the iconic ballet and opera venue is home to the internationally renowned Royal Ballet Company. Founded in 1931 and made up of 100 ballet dancers, it's the largest of its kind in the UK. And it's currently the company's busiest time of year. There's a certain hush about the place. Tutus are being tailored, instruments tuned to the sound of Tchaikovsky's mellifluous score, and the magical scenery of Sweetieland is being carefully assembled. Nutcracker season is well and truly upon us. (laughs) 
one of the most iconic ballets of all time, Tchaikovsky's two-act masterpiece accounts for around 40% of the Royal Opera House's annual ticket revenues. The narrative follows Clara's dream in which she befriends a nutcracker that comes to life and takes Clara to the land of sweets. Clara awakens and finds herself by the Christmas tree with her beloved nutcracker. William Bracewell and Fumi Kaneko are two of the Royal Ballet Company's principal dancers and form part of this year's iteration of The Nutcracker, choreographed by Peter Wright. Bracewell, who plays the role of the Cavalier, and Kaneko, who reprises the role of the Sugar Plum Fairy, join a cast of dancers aged between 10 and 60. As part of the ballet's finale, they perform a pas de deux, a particularly beautiful duet. Here's William. We perform a surprisingly difficult pas de deux right at the end of the ballet. I've probably done it how many times have I performed this role? At least the last eight or ten years of my life, there's wow. there's one thing that's a constant in my life, <laughs> and it is Nutcracker at Christmas. <laughs> I feel like every year it's a challenge to come back to this Nutcracker. Mm. Because it, it has everything in this pas de deux. Yeah, it does actually. It's got the beautiful, like, slow, elegant, controlled, mm. but it's got the punchy, like, throws mm -hmm. and big lifts. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not a short one. It's quite substantial. Mm. Like, the music is amazing and mm -hmm. really, like, if, it really gets you revved up, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> First performed in 1934, the Nutcracker initially went by the French name of Casnoisette. 88 years later the perennial ballet has retained its place within society's arts and culture sphere. I think it's because it's such a festive ballet yeah. and it, it's so iconic and every year when we come back to this ballet, it gives me so much happy spirit and festive feeling. There's something about Nutcracker, it's like we have these rituals within our like calendar, don't yeah, we? Yeah. And you would not put Nutcracker at any other time no. of the year, would you? It's so popular because I think it's tapped into that, that festive feeling. For Bracewell and Kaneko, it's an honour to perform the ballet that they used to watch growing up. I mean, you just said you still re you remember the Royal Ballet production from when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. So do I. I. I came to see it when I was nine or ten mm -hmm. with my mum. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was um, Miyako Yoshida and Johnny Cope. And I have oh this, gosh. yeah, I know. And it's that's, that's the, it's the like the, it's the iconic. Yeah, right? I, I remember Same. my mum, we must, I must have seen the video before. So she thought, okay. I'm going to try and get to watch that oh. cast. So it's been part of my life for, what, like over 20 years. Yeah. So to be doing it now yeah. with Fumi, is, it's amazing. We've danced a few things together, so mm -hmm. I feel like our old partnership is it's really solid. I absolutely love dancing with Fumi. Part of what makes the Nutcracker an enduring memory in the dancers' childhoods is the extraordinary scenery and costumes which create the magical stagecraft of Sweetie Land. Lots of glitters. Oh, so much glitter. Of course. Sometimes I wake up the next day and there's glitter in my yeah. bed. It's really, really beautiful. And also I feel like it's iconic because I've been watching videos since when I was little and I'm actually wearing the same costume 
as them. They do an amazing job of upkeeping the costumes as well. Because yeah, so that yeah, they they'll do alterations to them and update them and clean them and if any need repairing. And you can look back in the costumes and see all of the old names. The ballet isn't just limited to ballet fanatics. It continues to attract audiences of all ages and backgrounds. I even remember I watched the Royal Ballet Natsukuyaka on DVD when I was a kid. And then I still remember that that was amazing. And then I watched it again and again so many times. And just everything about set, this Christmas tree goes bigger and bigger. It's and the music, the costumes, the sparkling, <laughs> everything. It, it's a magic, I think. That was the Royal Ballet's principal dancer, Fumi Kaneko, there in a report by Claudia Jacob. The Nutcracker is on at London's Royal Opera House until January 14th. You can also watch the show on the new Royal Opera House streaming platform. That's all for this edition and for this year of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to all our panellists today, Guy Delaunay, Carlotta Ribello, Chris Lord, David Stevens, and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean with editing assistance from Tams and Howard. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The Monocle Daily is back on January 2nd. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.